Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1371, entitled Dunatics. <laughs> Our podcast title is Pod Maudib. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And maybe I should be called Rob Frejan for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no prizes to those who have guessed at the focus for today's show. Look, the subject of Dune, the matter of Arrakis, is so ginormous. It's probably about the size of one of the great makers from the desert of that planet. So we're going to sort of chop it up into bits, which I believe in Dune... Technology means that you actually have to apply a shire-sized electric shock to each individual segment of the worm in order to kill Mm. it. Either that will use the family atomics. (laughs) If we do that, we'll be declared a rogue house and we'll be on the run forever. (laughs) So today we're going to basically look at the Genesis novel of it all, Frank Herbert's Mm -hmm. book. Yep. But we will mention some of the adaptations of it along the way, wherever it's relevant or we think it's necessary, and perhaps save a little bit of time at the end of the show to have a bit of a roundup of those various adaptations. And why, says he in a prophetic manner, are we doing this now? Because of... Brand new June. So, yes, we do have the film, much-awaited, much-anticipated new June film, It does come up in the title cards, June Part 1, so I don't think it's any surprise that this is the first half of a two-parter. So if you do head along, it is out in cinemas now. Do not expect to see the whole of the first June book represented on screen in this first film, which does run about two and a half hours, but you will get a nice slice of the June novel in June Part 1, which is out now, directed by Denise Villeneuve and starring the likes of Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and a cast of incredible actors, dream cast in my opinion. But I think we'll start the beginning of it all back in 1965 with the very first novel, June, penned by Frank Herbert. So shall I just give a little bit of an overview first up? I actually have come to June quite new. The movie is what spurred me to read the book, but I gather, Rob, you've got quite the history with Herbert's novels and the the Juneology. <laughs> Sitting here on the desk, I have the illustrated Dune, Ooh. and this is the first June book that I read. It always seemed to be summer back then, back ah. in the 19... 19- 70s when I read this particular copy from 1978. And as I said, it's the illustrated Mm. tune, and that means that it's got John Schoenher's glorious original magazine illustrations in black and white, pen and ink ones, and also some colour pieces as well, some colour plates and a colour cover. And this guy is the man who really, for me, Mm -hmm. who set the tone for my visual picture as I was reading along. For me, this was an incredible experience reading this book. So it's Mm. after I've seen Star Wars. 
Right, which is kind of something that was inspired a bit by Elements of June. So you're already yeah. a bit immersed in that energy. I see it's very interesting, I think, that mm. June was kind of the original and I think a lot of people do come to it after seeing some of the content that it's influenced. We had that same interesting reverse juxtaposition. It's almost the opposite of prescient, isn't mm. it? It's hindsight with the film John Carter. Oh, and- yes. Edgar Rice Burroughs' books had so many elements that went into science fiction later on that by the time we had a modern version of the book as a film, it looked quite dated because we'd already seen all those things. I think it's actually something that's pretty common. And I do think as well sometimes things like Dune, which have had a bit of an interesting history of adaptation and sequels Mm. and so on, sometimes don't come to the screen in a fashion as Dune has now, very popular, and I think a lot of attention has been paid. It's a bit delayed because it can be kind of hard to translate, but I think now we have kind of the technology at our hands to do it justice perhaps. So, Let's dig in a little bit to the novel that we're discussing first up. So, as mentioned, came out in 1965, was originally published in Analog Magazine as sort of a serial piece and then published as a novel. Herbert himself did pen five sequels. They include June Messiah, Children of June, God Emperor of June, Heretics of June, and Chapter House June. And Rob has them all. He's holding them up as I cycle through. And then if you're wondering, but I've seen June novels with different titles. That would be because in 1999, after Herbert had passed, he passed in 1986, his son Brian has continued on with author Kevin J. Anderson and they've gone on to pen many more novels in the June series. I think it says over a dozen or so. So, yes, I think you'd be forgiven for being a bit confused about exactly how big this series is, but it did all start with that very first June novel and it is a novel that's kind of been touted as one of the you know pinnacle science fiction novels it did win awards in its time so it won the nebula award back in 1965 on its release and then in the following year it won the hugo award and of course we'll detail a bit more later but has been adapted into a film a tv mini series and then another film which is the latest june film that's been released this year Amongst the influence that it had on things like Star Wars, I was interested to note the Miyazaki film Nausicaa Valley of the Wind and countless other things in its approach to the way the future has been portrayed and also the role of technology or more specifically robots and computers or lack thereof that role inside the Dune universe as well and kind of the way it pitches the future and what humanity is up to. So I'll give a little overview of the plot and then, Rob, feel free to jump in if you want to add or expand on anything. But just as a brief, quick logline, and this is sort of from the perspective of I've read this quite recently. So, Rob, you read it decades ago, but I only read it last year. So so we're smack dab in the middle of a universe where there are great houses and these houses control these different planets or planetary fives. And then, of course, we do have a young protagonist that we're following along with, at least for this first novel, from my understanding. So many of these tales centre around a young man, and this young man is Paul Atreides, and he's of the great house of Atreides. We come into the story as the family is about to leave their home planet of Caledon with its oceans, and I feel a bit Scottish-inspired, to take up mantle on the desert planet Arrakis. Now, Arrakis is where a lot of our action will take place, and Arrakis is a very 
valuable place to set our scene because it is the source of melange or spice. And this is a very, very, very valuable resource in this time and place. And so it fuels space travel. It's kind of the center of everything. It provides these kind of trips and mental enhancements to those who take it. It's this very thinly veiled reference to mushrooms. And I think Herbert did take a lot of interest in psilocybin and so on and other psychedelics. So not too much of a long bow to draw there with that one. There are multiple themes and things to dig into, but it's generally the book June is as much about politics and power and what humanity may evolve to be tens of thousands of years in the future, as much as it is about, you know, interplanetary travel and life on other planets and the fate of Paul, who's our young protagonist, who is a lot more beneath the surface and maybe an interesting destiny of his own. As I sort of alluded to before, one of the key things of the novel is that there's a lack of computers and AI. That's a deliberate choice and there's a deliberate absence of that. And that was because Herbert wanted to focus a bit more on the societal elements. Part within that is the two feuding families with Arrakis at the very centre, really, stuck in the middle. And that's the Atreides family, headed by Duke Leto Atreides, who's the patriarch and Paul's father. And then we also have the Harkonnens, led by Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And he was, prior to the Atreides coming on to Arrakis, the most recent steward of the planet, and was made quite rich from plundering it for its spice for many decades. And the Baron is a formidable force and quite the presence in any room, uh, so to speak. So, yes, yeah, so that's kind of a bit of where we're at. Um, obviously, Arrakis is a quite unforgiving climate and a desert planet for those outsiders who aren't used to the way of living in the desert. Um, but we do also have some people who have called the, their planet and the desert their home for many years, and that's the Fremen. So they're kind of a, a people who live on Arrakis and have made use of Arrakis's harsh environment to their advantage and have invented certain technology to help them get by in the environment. So and obviously this is where we all begin and then chaos ensues. <laughs> hmm. Well, that's a perfect place to put a track since we were talking about Dune and the chaos that overcomes it. Actually, it's a very complicated chaos, but the agents of destruction at one stage in this novel, and there are many, mm-hmm. are the emperor's feared mm. and infamous Saudalka troops who were trained on the hell planet, the prison planet of Saladus Secadus. And this is a track called Saudalka Trained by Gurney Halleck. And this is a remix. And that's actually wrong because I can't see Gurney Halleck training the Saudalka. But Mm. that's what they did on this album, which has got the same name. And it's by an artist called Celestial Sequencing. And I chose this as an example of one of the amazingly large number of musicians who've been influenced by Mm. the Dune stories over the years. At the Mm -hmm. start of the program today, we heard Toto doing the soundtrack main title from the 84 David Lynch film. What could be more 80s than a Dune adaptation by David Lynch soundtrack by Toto? I love it. Yeah. But here we go with Saudalka trained by Gurney Halleck. Hi, this is Scott Bakula. Welcome aboard Zero G. 
Saudalka, trained by Gurney Halleck. It's a remix, an instrumental from the album Celestial Sequencing, just one of the innumerable number of musicians who've been influenced by Frank Herbert's Dune, whether it be the novels or the films or the miniseries or whatnot, perhaps even the graphic novel or the activity book. Video game. (laughs) Who's to say? There are so many things. And we're talking about Frank Herbert's Dune today, the Uh book, amongst other incarnations, in preparation to have a look at a future date at the new movie. And I wanted to mention The Road to Dune. Ah, okay. By, yeah, Frank Herbert and his son, Brian Herbert, and Uh collaborator Kevin J. Anderson. Now, Anderson is a name that you'll know if you're into the Star Wars universe, lots of Mm -hmm. books that he's penned in that particular franchise. And Brian Herbert, of course, is Frank Herbert's son. By the way, in this book I understood at last that Lady Jessica is an analogue for Frank Herbert's wife, Beverly Herbert, who was his secretary, amongst other roles. And you can see actually how the character of Jessica, who was Duke Leto's secretary as well, mm-hmm. as other things, influenced that character. Now, The Road to Dune is a 2005 book, and it contains a lot of the content of some cardboard boxes they found ah. in an attic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as some uh, strong boxes and other sources of material. And it contains a complete alternate Dune novel taken from Herbert's original outline. Wow. This is a literary curiosity in that it allows us to look at the development of the story. And even more critical and maddeningly uncompleted but big enough to explain things, a 1957 proposal that Frank Herbert wrote about a United States Department of Agriculture project in Oregon, Mm -hmm. and there they were stabilising sand dunes by sowing grasses upon them. And these are the notes for that article in there. So it was never published until they put the notes into this book. And so you can get the genesis of the idea for the ecological theme that is at the heart and soul of the Dune story. Uh It also contains lots of letters back and forwards between the publishers and Herbert, so you can get an idea of the history of that, plus short stories. Additional content. Yeah, little essays that Herbert wrote. And if you read the book, you'll know that it's got a glossary and extra material at the back and Mm. little essays and maps and the whole thing, the whole Lord of the Rings (laughs) idea, but for science fiction. And that's Mm. one of the many reasons why... Dune is a jewel in the crown of not just the emperor, but the science fiction genre. So it does Mm. stand, when you put in the other books as well, in kind of a similar position to Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I actually really like that it's got a different focus for a science fiction novel. It's less on the idea of, you know, things around robotics or technology in that sense and much more about ecology and societal progress and other things and psychic abilities and so on. A different kind of sci-fi, which I thought was was interesting when I was reading it because I wasn't sure what to expect from it really, coming at it quite fresh. And I could see that if you read it, 
you'd say, oh, this is like ripping off all these other themes and things from classic science fiction or movies, but it was actually the seed of all of that from the beginning. It influenced those things. So it's interesting. You look at it and you also think, hmm, galactic empire and its decline, people with some clever ideas. Yes, he's writing a bit in response to something, isn't he? Mm, yes, there's foundations to this, if mm. we can say that. Paul is a super-powered mutant, the wild card, something like the mule from the Foundation trilogy, just not entirely an unexpected one like the mule, though Paul stuffs up the Benny Gesserit's breeding plan by emerging from the bloodlines a, a generation before they wanted one too. That's obviously been noted by many critics along the way. I yeah. haven't actually, never actually heard uh, or saw Frank Herbert mention that in an article or as a comment, but uh, maybe he wouldn't. <laughs> yes. Well, but, I mean, wow. you know, even if it was that he was interested in the Foundation series and wanted to do something that had his own point and had his own focus, I mean, I guess if the Foundation was popular at the time, it kind of makes sense. Mm. Now, we mentioned up front the Bildungsroman, which is at the core of the story, the coming of age mm. of young Paul Atreides or Paul Maudib, if you like. Oh, yeah. And that is an important part of this story, especially since there's a chosen one narrative running. Yes, very and, much so. And here is the problem with adapting Dune in a nutshell, I believe, spinning off of that. If you adapt Dune, as David Lynch did, into mm -hmm. a very short, relatively speaking, movie, mm. then there's a lot of things that are going to be trimmed. Mm. So there's a whole deal of stuff in there that's not in the book, that's not in, in Lynch's film about the Bene Gesserit, the matriarchal, religious, mm. political, manipulative, I would almost call them a coven, but that's playing into the witch's stereotype. Yeah, and I think that's reducing it a bit too because it's they're very much, they're quite mentally disciplined. They certainly have a lot of soft power, as you'd say, maybe in pulling strings around the great houses and influencing politics and outcomes in their own way. They're a female kind of faction, I suppose, but quite powerful and I think, yeah, not to be trifled with. But they do trifle with humanity. They are mm -hmm. intricately involved in trying to guide bloodlines, basically. They're practicing their own theory of super eugenics, trying to create essentially a superman. Mm. Although the ironic thing is they are essentially superwomen, mm. which does come across in some of the later novels and indeed in, in Dune itself. But a lot of that subtext is dropped for time mm. considerations, less so in the Dune miniseries mm. because they have way more time to play with in that. Yeah. But everyone still doesn't quite get to the heart of what I think, and I could be wrong here, of Dune, which is that it's a cautionary tale. Mm. So if you drop all of this stuff out, you lose the idea that the Bene Gesserit's mission protectiva have softened up the planet of Arrakis by going in centuries before and putting in legends and yes. prophecies to prepare the way for the coming of a messiah. Mm. Mm. You know, the Fremen and the Arakan citizens who live in the city, the Fremen are out in the desert, they're actually ripe for that kind of thing to be placed upon them because they yeah. need hope desperately because their planet is at the centre of the galaxy's economy 
Hmm. And they're being exploited ruthlessly for generations. Yes, for this resource that they happen to have. I mean, the spice is an obvious stand-in for oil. I mean, there's definite Middle Eastern influence on the Dune novel, and that's not just in the oil metaphor either. Some bits of Paul's character and also a lot of the the influences culturally and language-wise. So if you lose all of that, or a good portion of that, then it just comes across as being, initially, the chosen one. Mm. This is the saga of young Paul as he becomes a superman, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, that may be considered a spoiler, and I'm sorry, but it was written back in 1965, so I do have to go there for this because it's an important point. And in David Lynch's film, we basically end it with, for he is the superman, he is the god. Oh, and we're missing that that underlying actual irony where it's meant to be a double-edged sword type of situation. Yes, yes. Mm. Now, being Frank Herbert, he's not being didactic about this. He he gives you the information so that you can make up your mind for yourself. Mm. When you get into those later five novels, they're all about how terrible this is, about the great jihad that takes over the galaxy and the billions killed. I was going to ask actually about the following novels because I have heard that in a lot of ways the following novels really change your perception of the first novel and be that for better or worse, some people say you should stop at one (laughs) and not continue on the saga. What are your thoughts on that, Rob? It's the core of Herbert's idea, really. I mean, apart from the ecology side of it, but the philosophical concept here is messiahs and cult religions are not a really good idea. Mm. They may seem like it at the time. They may provide you with a temporary advantage. It's Mm. a terrible idea with hideous consequences, and they spend the other novels fighting against that. To a surprising extent, actually, you get to the end of them and you go, well, no, no, he's not the messiah. He's just a naughty boy. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because I think then that kind of shows we have this gut reflex where we don't want that. We want the chosen one. We want it to be real just as much as people on Arrakis want it to be a true saviour and that Paul is the chosen one and that we Mm. end up happy. Very interesting, I think. Yeah, Herbert's trying to make a point. I wonder if how many people get to that point (laughs) or they give up. I'm wondering too, the Lynch film, if he's softened down all the Bene Gesserit parts, that'd be a pretty male-dominated film then, wouldn't it? Because we're not talking about there's not much diversity amongst. Well, the Lady Jessica still stands tall in Lynch's film. Fabulous character too. I think she's definitely a standout. In Lynch's film, as we may see another time, they take away to a large extent her ability to use the weirding powers that the Bene Gesserit have. Not entirely, but and they turn her weirding fighting style mostly they sort of grafted onto these sound-powered guns so that anyone can use that. Oh, no, I hate that. I really hate that. I feel because there's a lot of training and it's quite rigorous what these Bene Gesserit go through to build these abilities. Well, in the book, of course, they do train the Fremen in the weirding way. But that said, it is a long process that takes train, yeah, being the key thing. It still takes time to train them to use the weirding module, the length of a whole montage in Lynch's film. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I feel like that was, I mean, I'm not down with those decisions, but okay, it's interesting how no, he's neither, approached it. Neither am I. We should have another track here mm. as we 
walk without rhythm across the sands of dune. Oh, yes, the sand dune dance. <laughs> yeah, so that the worms won't get us. Well, what if the worms actually have an ear for jazz? Well, then they may actually we're done for. <laughs> we're done for. <laughs> Oh, that would be a perfect segue into any of the multiple jazz tracks that have been influenced by Dune over the years. So many of those, too. It was a little musical odyssey at researching music for this. (laughs) But let's go with the main theme from another Dune adaptation, the Sci-Fi Channel's miniseries, which is often neglected over Mm. Lynch's more spectacular epic train crash of a film. (laughs) And this is by Graham Ravel, and this is like early 2000s, so perhaps not quite as many of the synth sounds of Toto. Oh, dang. <laughs> or dang, dang, da dang. <laughs> this is Robin Williams, creator of The Science Show, and you're listening to Zero G on Triple R FM. Ah, the main title of the 2000 Sci Fi Channel miniseries, Frank Herbert's Dune. Graham Ravel doing the soundtrack compositional duties there, Mm -hmm. and John Harrison was the creator of that series, and a very creditable series it is. And really, you know, we can only really touch upon all of this here because it's such a massive saga with its six novels in all and then the dozens of spin-off ones and all of the other things. Feature in the spin-offs. Have you read all of those, Rob, or just Herbert's core six? He's in. Oh, this is a spoiler. He's in Children of Dune, mm. and his presence is felt keenly throughout many of the others. But it's his children who are more important in the later books in terms of being characters. Because, of course, one of the things that we know about the Spice Melange is, apart from it giving certain people prescient visions and allowing the guild navigators to fold space or perhaps just actually navigate through them, it depends on whether you're talking about the films or the books, they get a bit tricky there. Mm. Apart from all of those things, its main importance to humans who aren't mutated guild navigators, is the fact that it's a geriatric spice Mm. that enables you to extend your lifespan in Mm -hmm. the case of some of Paul's children for a very, very long time indeed. Interesting. If there's something mortals love, it's the idea of being more immortal, no matter what the cost, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. So here is the, the core And this is a book that has so many different cores. I'm thinking that's one of the reasons why it's so successful. We Mm. talked about the the coming of age theme in it. Then, of course, there's there's environmentalism and ecology, which is just a vast part of this book. I was rereading one of the chapters of, of the original book today and they were talking about how they were making uh, moisture traps to plant mm. with bushes in one of the Siege Canyons. And the book steps you through a great deal of that. Yeah. I can't remember that happening too much back in the 60s beyond Dune. I'm sure there mm. were other novels that have slipped my mind. But do you remember the, the environmental themes of Lord of the Rings with mm. uh, the industrialization of the Shire imposed yes. by the forces of Saruman? And these sorts of things, they are important. This is the procedural. Let's call mm. it the, the ecological procedural of Dune. And I think, for me, that's what makes this stand out beyond most fantasy or science fiction novels that do not deal with that kind of thing. This is mm. world building from the very 
genetic makeup of the creatures on the planet, the flora as well. Mm. So it's it's all there. It's yeah. so important and it is it is at the core of the politics and the economics and all of the other things. You know, the religion also gets brought into that through the prescient visions. And this is one of the problems we do have discussing this because I've been – on this particular journey since the 1970s. Yeah. A lot of other people have too. There have been these movies, miniseries and so Mm. on. We have a hindsight vision of this. It's a very beloved series, and this book in particular, the first one, is a very beloved book, and I think people have a lot of their own associations and their own thoughts on yeah, what the focuses should be. Because there's, like you said, there's a lot of themes in here. There's around ecology, religion, and so on. And it's a very ambitious ask to try to meet everybody's expectations when you're doing, be it the TV adaptation or movies or what have you. So there's a lot in here, I think. And I think a lot of things that are alluded to without it being as explicit about what he's trying to say. And then, of course, you have the very heavy-handed metaphors for certain things, but it's all woven together in a really interesting way. And it has a massive resonance now in the 21st century because of climate change. Mm. I would hesitate to call it, no, I won't because I'm me. Let's call it global worming. (laughs) (laughs) Should have used that for the title for today. You know, I mean, this is something that Kim Stanley Robinson well understands and makes a pretty good living out of now in his works. Yeah. And so to me, this is something that is now fundamental to the ecology of the science fiction genre, Mm. the fact that you actually have to do this kind of thing in your world-building novels. And so Frank Herbert and his relatives and everybody else has worked on this since have also managed to include that quite to their credit. In fact, there's even a moment in the Lynch film that, that I really felt was one of the key moments. And when the Atreides walk out of their ship on Arrakis for the first time, and the mm. shield goes up and the population and their troops are assembled there on the raw surface of the planet and they walk out of the air conditioning of the ship and the heat hits them and you see them visibly stagger but catch themselves because they're Atreides and they are firm and noble and tough. One of, one of the great houses sort of indeed, yes. So that was just a moment in there that struck me. And you can also tell where each adaptation stands on whether or not they include the banquet scene and the the Duke's revulsion at the Harkonnen custom of everybody walking into the, the banquet hall and washing their hands in a basin, slopping water on the floor, and then wiping their hands on towels, throwing that in the water on the floor, and then the squeezings from those towels being sold at the door to the beggars. Yeah, that's a really nice, well, not nice, a very unpleasant detail in the novel that I think says the world about people's attitude towards water on the planet and what the Harkonnen. This is how you go, Harkonnen, you go, Harkonnen, <laughs> and not in the- with moisture from your body, Rob. <laughs> it's only if you do it on the floor. I don't believe it's that if you spit in their face. <laughs> That's true, 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 true. Very true. But no, you're absolutely right. I think it's important to build not just the role of planet Arrakis, but also what that means for water as a resource, how that's handled by the different people on the planet. We've talked about Paul's place in the novel, you know, so there's a good study of of the hero's journey in this as well. You know, Joseph Campbell would have a field day on June, <laughs> maybe a very dry and desiccated field day, but nevertheless, you know, of course we've got uh, religion and there's influences in here of Zen religion as well as Catholicism too. Yeah. Echoes of that coming through. Absolutely. And 
you know, the dying empire. And of course, that ecological culture, the desert culture, there's a lot of Middle Eastern and Islamic influences pushed into yeah. there. The actual war that they're fighting, the guerrilla war against the Harkonnens, <laughs> the, because it was written in the mid-60s, I think there's also a bit of influence from the Second Southeast Asian War there mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the Illustrated Dune, John Schoenhurst's illustrations of the ornithopters, the flying machines, yep. they almost look like Bell Huey Iroquois helicopters with wings instead of rotor blades. So I think that there was an understanding of, of that as well. And, of course, some of these things are universal themes throughout the ages, so that makes this very timeless a book. That said, he's managed to create a novel that also subverts the white saviour concept. Very interesting point, yeah. Mm. And it's not Lawrence of Arabia, so, <laughs> you know, even if they did want David Lean to originally direct an adaptation of it, he refused because he'd done that. <laughs> so, Been there, done that, yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's have another track now. And we've had a few from various adaptations and we've done a bit of musical exploration as well in terms of people who've been inspired by Dune as how could you not? (laughs) (laughs) So I think we will play a track from, ooh, now that's an interesting choice, says he looking at the the playlist. I think we'll play a track from Tool. (gasps) Rob, I love your love of Tool. Yeah. And this is from their Fear Inoculum mm-hmm. album, and it's the—I won't attempt the French pronunciation of this—but it suffice to say that it is the litany against fear, mm-hmm. which is to say, fear is the mind killer, the little death, <laughs> the mantra from yes. the Dune books that helps them get through all sorts of trouble. Yeah, zero G is fun, as you were. The Litany Against Fear, Adam Jones at least, of Tool being a big science fiction fan and crediting Frank Herbert's Dune for some influence upon the band's long-awaited Fear Inoculum album that that track is from. Now, we have done our little pop-hop across the desert of the original novel and some other spin-offs of that in the literary fashion, and I, I would like to say that I have read some of Brian Herbert's and Kevin J. Mm. Anderson's spin-off novels. And? I haven't <laughs> been hugely impressed by them, but that mm. said, I haven't read anywhere near enough of them to say that for the whole series. They might get more interesting as they go along. They basically are doing that redactive sort of infill, mm. expensive infill that many people do when they add to a known classic yeah. And so, you know, you'll get the uh, the Butlerian jihad against the machines. Yeah. You'll get comprehensive histories of the Emperor's house and of House Harkonnen. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very common way of expanding a world is to not come up with any sort of new markers but to revisit things that are known in the world but haven't been expanded on yet. Mm. And that said, they may even have done some ones where they do go Who further knows? than that. I yeah. Just, I can't walk on that journey. I cannot go on that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, 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 I think it can be hit and miss. A lot of the times I've seen people try to add to known series with additional content. It's never quite um, – I mean, there's a new Hunger Games book that's a President Snow novel. I mean, sometimes oh. I think it gets a bit weird. Yeah, so. Mm. 
It never snows on June. Well, sometimes it rains. <laughs> you wouldn't expect that. But nevertheless. All right, now we just wanted to have a quick toddle, and this is actually more abbreviated than I'd expected it would be, but we got we got carried away on the sand tides. And there are so many different adaptations of June, mm. which we actually actually mentioned as we went along. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for today. But I think this is actually going to be the this the core subject of another. Yeah. Zero G episode as we go to adaptations of Dune. <laughs> so just to list a few, look, they tried quite mightily early on to get a movie version up and running. I mean, and we're not talking about audio books to start with uh, mm. or album versions of the, the author reads Dune, as, as worthy as some of those actually are. Let's go back to originally... Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune in 1974. So there was this French consortium and they bought the film rights mm-hmm. and they got our hero from El Topo and Holy Mountain to have a crack at it. He wanted to do a 10-hour feature mm-hmm. and he was adamant about that. He was going to make it that long. And it was, let's just say, look, Salvador Dali was going to play the emperor. Oh, Orson, love to see Orson that. Wells. Orson Welles was the Baron. Oof. Gloria Swanson was the Reverend Mother. Yep. David Carradine, Duke Luton. <laughs> Geraldine Chaplin as Lady Jessica. Udo Kier as Peter DeVries, the Mentat. Mm-hmm. And in the tradition of casting musicians as Fade Ralpha, Mick Jagger. <laughs> so, oh. And the, the soundtrack was at one stage going to be by Pink Floyd. That would have been a pretty psychic. You would have had to have some spice before you watched that one. <laughs> yeah. Now, in this munch together of melange, they also had production designers like Jean Girard, that is to say Mobius, and H.R. Geiger and Christopher Foss, and all of these guys put together this magnificent pre-production book of artwork, which has never been published properly as a standalone book because the Mm. film didn't go anywhere. But these artists, some of them got together on Alien Mm -hmm. because Dan O'Bannon was working on Jodorowsky's Dune. And so you can rightly say that Jodorowsky's Dune is one of the great influential unmade films in science fiction. Yeah. And if you want to check that out, there's a documentary called Jodorowsky's June, and it came out in 2013, and it details all of this. And I believe one of those uh, production booklets came up for auction recently and sold for, like, millions, you know. So I bet. <laughs> I want to see it. I want to have that book as a as a coffee table book. Anyway, we've also got a few other ones. Ridley Scott had a crack at it as well, but... Didn't manage to get it done, yes. Mm. He went off and did a little film called Blade Runner instead. (laughs) So, yeah, you know. And we also had David Lynch's one in 1984, and that's all sort of off of the back of Dino De Laurentiis' studio. Mm. So this is quite complicated. So Lynch had come out of The Elephant Man and so on and you know, so he was a hot property and he was getting offers to do like Return of the Jedi and all sorts yeah. of things. But he got this one to do and he had no idea about science fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it actually shows and he hadn't read the book and that shows. Yeah. And like I said, magnificent epic train wreck with him. 
brilliant cast, like Francesca Annis playing Jessica and Brad DeReef playing Peter from Jose mm. Ferrier was the Emperor Linda Hunt. I think fresh off her year of living dangerously gig. Oh. Jordan Kyle McLaughlin, you know, later to become Lynch Fave, yeah. <laughs> Lynch Fave as Paul. Uh, Virginia Madsen, Kenneth McMillan playing the Baron, Jurgen Prochnow as Duke Leto, Patrick Stewart as Gurney. Oh, good casting. Like but read the book, we went Lynch. Come on, mate. <laughs> yeah. Although to be fair, Lynch did read the book after he was tapped for the project and he did say that he it knocked him out. Sting playing Fade. Yeah. <laughs> Max von Sydow as the Imperial Planetologist, Sean Young as Charney, and Dean Stockwell, as we recently mentioned, as Dr. Yui. Yeah. So, you know, that cast alone was just incredible and they did great work, if over the top work in mm. many cases. Then we've got the science fiction miniseries in 2000 by John Harrison. He had read the book, lots of them. Gosh, good, good. <laughs> and that actually, although it suffers a little bit for some budgetary issues and the fact mm. that the special effects are in 2000, so they're, they're not uh, as practical as Lynch's ones, yeah. but they're CGI, early CGI. Yeah, and actually right. some of them look pretty good, but they don't all stand up in the harsh light of, you know, 2020. So he also went on and did an, another miniseries off the back of that one, uh, Children of Dune. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that had um, James McAvoy in it. William Hurt was playing Duke Leto, and Alec Newman was Paul. Oh, okay. And mm. the children of Dune, as I said, we had James McAvoy playing Leto II, Jessica Brooks playing Garnema, Alice Krieg was Lady Jessica. You know, so they got a better cast as they went along. And I'm not saying that the original cast, there's anything wrong with them in the first miniseries. We may get to that someday as a, a standalone sort of thing in itself. And, you know, there have been other attempts, and now we get to the new film. And you've seen it, so give us a hot take oh, in our remaining minutes. The press. Yeah, so yeah. I have gone along, saw it at IMAX, I think, in its home ground where it should be seen. And I think that it's quite faithful and has cut out things that could be stood to cut out while keeping in the energy and atmosphere of the things that are the heart of June, in my opinion. I think the cast is incredible. And I will pause there because I don't want to dig in too much um, until we have a chance to discuss it when we've both seen it, Rob. But let's just say that I will probably be seeing it again. Mm, okay. And it's definitely one for the big screen. We're not going to muck around and wait for it to come out on streaming. I think so. I think if you, I mean, even if you haven't read June and you're not sure if it's for you, I mean, the cast alone and the scale of the piece, and if you've liked Villeneuve's work before, I know he's done Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, and so on. If you've liked anything he's done in the past, give it a go because it's it's epic. It's how cinema should be, in my opinion. So, yeah. Mm. Well, that's high praise indeed. I will look forward to seeing it myself. Now, I feel and like I should have managed everyone's expectations, but I think um, he's on a good <laughs> wicket with it. Let's just say that. But make up your, see and make up your own mind. Um, and, yeah, don't let me sway you. But yeah. mm. Well, that's Megan's prescient vision for the rest of us of the new Dune movie. All right. Now, we're going to go out with David Bowie's I'm Deranged, which always reminds me of Baron Harkonnen. <laughs> And um, this comes from his Outside album. And David Bowie has some sort of tenuous connections to Dune, as he does with everything. It's mm-hmm. like six, six degrees of separation from David Bowie. And um, 
in this case, you know, he worked with David Lynch on uh, Twin Peaks and this I'm Deranged song was used as the title track, I think, for Lost Highway. Ah. So, you know, there's all sorts of connections there. And I'm sure, I can't remember in particular, but I'm sure someone along the line said, we've got to get David Bowie to play Fade Rafa. Yeah. So, <laughs> or something like that. All right. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. We'll go out now with I'm Deranged by David Bowie. Until next week in these challenging times, perhaps you too could benefit from the Benny Gesserit litany against fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.